Welcome back, everybody. We got another great guest for you today, Mark Bedina of USA Today Sports. How are you doing, sir? I am doing well, Stephen. Hope you're hanging in. Yeah, well, you know, you cover the Lakers. They had a first round exit. I'm a Knicks fan. They had a first round exit. But, you know, now it's just fun to like watch and other teams. And I have friends of other friends who are fans of other teams. So now like they just get to suffer. So that's good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for me, I I got no stakes or rooting interest because I cover the league and, you know, I've been doing this for a little bit. So as soon as one team gets eliminated, it's kind of focusing on the remaining teams as well as, you know, the fallout of how teams handle their offseason. And what seems to be so interesting, two playoff teams have already let go of coaches and there is seven total openings now in the league because of Rick Carlisle stepping down yesterday. Is there a team situation that if you were a coach, you would absolutely jump on the opportunity? You know, it's a good question because I think on paper I would look at, hey, the New Orleans Pelicans are really enticing because Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram are really young players. But I think that, you know, there has been a pattern, regardless of who's in charge in the front office, that there's not, you know, a lot of stability. And I know that David Griffin, he's a smart basketball mind. Uh, He had success in Cleveland, but just the fact that they let go of a coach in Stan Van Gundy one year after his hiring, you know, not only reflects, you know, his inability to bring the best out of the roster, but it also reflects the decision-making and vision of the front office. So I think that, you know, the complicated thing that you have to weigh with that and, and the Dallas Mavericks and the Portland Trailblazers is there might be a lot of enticing star players on that team. Luka Doncic with Dallas, Damian Lower with Portland, but it's all about how is the organizational synergy. And I think in Portland and Dallas, you know, up to this year, there has been a lot of stability. Uh, you know, maybe they were never championship contenders, but they're always in the mix for the playoff punt. <clears throat> they weren't being stuck in the lottery, but, you know, the league is defined by, you know, Dallas and Portland, they also have, uh, you know, really enticing stars. Portland with Damian Lillard and um, Dallas with Luka Doncic. And unlike New Orleans, you know, those franchises have had a lot more stability uh, with their playoff success. And while they're never, uh, you know, in the hunt uh, for championship in recent seasons, um, you know, they were always considered a viable playoff team. But in today's NBA, It's all about championships. And I think this week in particular with the Dallas Mavericks, there is a pivot point of how stable is this organization. Mark Cuban's had cemented himself as one of the NBA's best owners, but letting go Donnie uh, Nelson after being with the organization for over two decades, uh, there being some internal tension with uh, his analytics guru, what his role is, and now having Dirk Nowitzki as an advisor, there is a pivot point as to whether they're able to thread the needle of making this transition versus, you know, everything kind of falling on a house of cards. So it's a lot of, a lot of unpredictable moving parts in the NBA for sure. I totally forgot that Portland even made the playoffs. They just always a bottom seeded team. And then they just kind of flounder in the playoffs. And then, you know, a couple of years, they surprise you. I forgot that they even made the playoffs this year. 
Yeah, and you know, in fairness to Portland, they did make the Western Conference Finals in 2019. They they ran up against a really talented Golden State Warriors team, uh, but they swept them even without Kevin Durant. So, you know, there has been different moments where you think, okay, now they're about to move onward, and they're you know within their confines of being a small market, there there have been some moves made over the years, getting Carmelo Anthony and adding some pieces to their front court to show Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum that they're not just about riding them and them only, but clearly to your point, them having a lot of first round exits the last two years and several years before that, it shows that, you know, they've hit a wall and that's why Damian Lillard, uh, I think was a little bit more vocal about expressing the urgency for there to be, you know, a better roster around them. So we've heard, Pretty much the same names linked to a lot of the jobs. You know, Jason Kidd, Chauncey Billups. Jason Kidd turned down the Portland job. Is there somebody that's flying under the radar right now that you think is going to get one of these openings? You know, it's hard to say because I think, you know, when, when I've talked to people about, you know, the Boston Celtics coaching search, uh, as well as the Portland Trailblazers coaching search specifically, they categorize it as, you know, it's a wide open search. They're trying to look at internal and external candidates um, and just kind of keep all their options open. I know that, you know, philosophically, each team has its own set of circumstances, but considering the times that we're in and the amount of openings that there are, um, I would find it very surprising and disappointing if Becky Hammond didn't get one of these jobs um, because, you know, not only has uh, she been proven with her head coaching the gigs that she's gotten in San Antonio at times when, you know, Greg Popovich has gotten ejected or did not coach that game for whatever particular reason, you know, she's broken the paradigm and showing that, you know, there is a room for a woman's a woman head coach to thrive in the NBA and the, and the players are all about it. Uh, all they care about, is if that coach will help them win games and make them better players. And also if they have the comfort level and treating them as human beings and not being concerned about the, the, you know, gender dynamics. And, and Becky has shown that she's capable of doing that. You know, maybe someone like Dawn Staley uh, could also fall in that mix. She's had a lot of success at, in South Carolina. I know that she is one of the candidates with Portland, but it remains to be seen. Um, so that might be a little too early, just knowing that, you know, this is probably some of the first interviews that she's had, but for Becky, she's already gone down this road before with talking to different NBA teams about head coaching vacancies. So, uh, now's the time for her to get her well-deserved opportunity. Becky Hammond, if she doesn't take over for the Spurs, which I don't think Popovich is in any situation to walk away. She absolutely should have been, you know, leading an NBA team the past few years, you could argue. And a lot of teams want her, and I agree with you totally. It's it's not when, it's just, or it's not if, it's when she takes over. And this year, there's a lot of openings, and I think that she might be able to finally slide into one. Yeah, and look, uh, I'm, I'm expressing this viewpoint as someone that, that has, you know, written about stories and talked to uh, different levers and, the game of basketball, whether it's the league, the players union, coaches, uh, there needs to be better inclusion in the coaching ranks when it comes to the number of black head coaches, the number of women head coaches. But, you know, there are 
um, you know, some understandable circumstances that teams face about, hey, if you're in this win now mode uh, and you're trying to placate a star, uh, do you ha- do, do you want to sign up for the extra expectations and scrutiny that you get with being the first trailblazer as well as, you know, being considerate of what that candidate is inheriting. And that also uh, can attach to a rebuilding position where, you know, maybe on one hand you're given more leeway where it's not about wins and losses. It's about development and and playing a culture, but at the same time, um, you know, are you just signing yourself up to just have a bad job and then, you know, you're out after a few years, but regardless of those individual and unique circumstances for any, coaching candidate the the reality is there's a lot of openings and and becky's paid her dues and you know she is fully deserving of one of these opportunities here i want to go back to the dallas mavericks real quick luca is eligible for the supermax and he kind of hinted that he wanted to sign it and then there's reports coming out you know that they could be preparing for life life without him is there some kind of rift starting to form in Dallas or does that just kind of seem like we're making a little too much out of recent departures amongst the staff? No, uh, I don't think we're making too much out of things, but it's, it's I, I think it's a matter of the unknown of where did the Mavericks go from here? Um, you know, there's a lot of times uh, when you look at the history of the NBA where a star player isn't seen eye to eye with, you know, the organization and there's frustration with, the losing and, uh, you know, staff departures or how the front office is handling it. But sometimes this is an opportunity to regain that player's trust. And so uh, Luca's given all indications that he plans to sign the Supermax uh, extension that he's eligible for. So I don't think that's a a question he's going to be with the Mavericks. But now it's about this pivot point of how do the Mavericks make sure that you know, he's with them long-term as opposed to this being a short-term deal where he signs the extension, he goes through another season of frustrations, and then those things start simmering up. So I think too early to think, okay, Luca's days are numbered, but, you know, the, the Mavericks certainly had a lot of work cut out for them. And, you know, it just came out that Dirk Nowitzki is going to be an advisor for them to help with the search here with both the front office and the coaching staff, the Mavericks have also worked or starting to work with an outside firm to help with these searches. Um, and so we'll, we'll see if, uh, you know, they're going to be able to address this, uh, this, um, you know, write a passage head on the right way. With Portland in Dallas, they, Damian Lillard, Luka Doncic, it's reported they have a lot of say in who becomes their new head coach. You like this, letting the players be comfortable and kind of getting like their guy instead of it being, we want what's best for the team and catering towards their superstars. Yeah, I think there's a way for there to be kind of a win-win and that, you know, the way that you talked about, you know, what the superstar wants versus what's best for the team in theory should be the same thing. It's about whatever helps, you know, the organization win, you know, the quickest, right. And the most successful. Um, and I think that Damian Lillard and, and Luka Doncic, they've earned that right because they're superstar type players. They're the best leaders on the team. 
Um, but I think there's a gray area of how you go about it. I think with Portland, uh, you know, Damian and to a lesser extent, CJ, they've remarkably threaded the needle well where, you know, they've, they've stressed time and time again in recent seasons that they want to be with Portland long term. And they've had an open relationship with Terry Stotts when he was the head coach before he parted ways with Portland, you know, not too long ago. And with Neil O'Shea, you know, the general manager of the Trailblazers and the way that Neil characterized it to me earlier last year was that it's not like CJ and Dame would give a yes or no vote to personnel moves, but, you know, he would run things by him and vice versa. So there really felt like there was this healthy, open relationship while respecting the confines of what Neil's job description is. But, you know, since Terry Stotts was let go, you know, Damian Lillard talked with Yahoo Sports' Chris Haynes about wanting to have Jason Kidd as the head coach. And, you know, quickly soon after that, Jason said publicly that he he removed himself from consideration. And, you know, I answered this not knowing fully what, you know, led to that. But, you know, you do wonder would would it have been more effective to get that message out internally as opposed to getting this out in the open. It, it's a tough, it's a tough thing uh, for NBA stars to navigate. Sometimes going the public route has been successful. Sometimes going internally has been more successful. So there's not a right or a wrong answer, but there is always this gray area of how do you, how do you thread the needle? Um, but I think that, you know, for those players, they should have that empowerment because they're the driving force of what makes those franchises successful. Uh, and, you know, it's not like they're role players. It's not like they just entered the team. Luca just finished his third season, but it hasn't taken a long time for him to clearly establish that he's going to be a generational talent. So I, I think it's totally appropriate for them to have that kind of power. I never thought of this until I asked you and then you kind of said it to me. Damian Lillard said he wanted Jason Kidd and Jason Kidd is under contract still with the Lakers. How come that isn't considered tampering? Well, it, it, it isn't because uh, for assistant coaches, it's just a different dynamic. Uh, so when there is a head coaching vacancy and there is an assistant coach uh, on another team, the, 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 typical routine is that team will reach out to that other team directly and seek permission to interview that candidate. And I don't even want to say nine times out of 10, I, I, I would venture to say 10 times out of 10, the, the, that team will give permission because they don't want to get in the way of that assistant coach getting a, a bigger job, a bigger payday. So that, that's a much different conversation than when you're talking about free agents with players because they, you know, they are, you know, not only under contract at that point uh, for a specific amount of years, but, you know, they, those, those teams want to keep them. With assistant coaches, it, it's a different thing. So um, that being said, with players, they're not subject to tampering rules. They're not you know, they're not front offices. So they have the freedom to talk to whoever they want with, you know, with other players on other teams. The NBA 
uh, I think it certainly wouldn't be appropriate, nor would they have the bandwidth to be monitoring player conversation. So it's just inevitable that they have, you know, a little bit of a different, unique role than front offices. But, you know, even with front offices, it's totally appropriate to talk to other teams, assistant coaches, because it's part of the typical chain of command that if they see an assistant as a candidate, they'll just run it by that team directly. And again, they'll always say, yeah, we have your support and whatever he thinks, uh, you know, is best for his future. We'll let him decide that. On one of our other podcasts the other day, I threw out this super hypothetical and I'm curious to see what an insider would think of it. The Bucks have not met expectations for a very long time now. They don't have a ton of draft capital. They haven't drafted particularly well. Is there any instance where they could consider trading Giannis? No, no. He's he's there to stay. They just did a extension last summer. Um you know, we'll, we'll have to see how the series plays out uh, with the Nets. I mean, it, it's kind of, uh, it's evolved. And so there is a chance that they advance and there's not this conversation to be had. But, you know, under kind of the, the spirit of where you're heading, if they do fall short of their playoff expectations, and that is to get farther than they were before and win a championship, I, I think if there are moves to be made, it's going to be Mike Bullenholzer. With, you know, as the head coach, but no, they're, I, I can't see any scenario where they're, where they're trading Giannis. I mean, first it would have to get to the point where Giannis would be demanding that trade. Um, but even if it got to that, I think that it would, they would have more conversations about, okay, what can we do to, you know, satisfy whatever frustrations. Uh, so yeah, expect Giannis to be there. I now want to ask you a couple questions about yourself. Do you remember the first story that you broke? Um, in the NBA or just like in general? Just in general. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. I think uh, when I was, I went to Syracuse for college. So I wrote for the student newspaper, the Daily Orange. Uh, the, these weren't like big stories, but I remember breaking a few, you know, player transfers with a women's basketball team when I was, uh, you know, when I was covering the women's basketball team there. And, you know, it's the same principles that apply. You try to cultivate sources um, and, you know, have conversations both in practice settings and away from that. And, you know, that can attach to players you know, people around them, family members, all that. So I was able to catch wind about a player leaving before it got out. And then, you know, I ran up the flagpole and got the confirmation from, from different people and then wrote a story. But as far as the NBA, um, it's hard to pick one out. I mean, frankly, uh, you know, with, with respect to the Woges and the Shams of the world, I'm not really – uh, the NBA reporter that's like doing transactional news a lot. So I'm doing more of, you know, enterprise deep dive, dives, analytical pieces. But, you know, when I was on the Lakers beat, there were times where, you know, I broke stuff as well as on the Warriors beat. I, I think the most, uh, the most memorable example is I caught wind during Kobe's farewell tour, Kobe Bryant's farewell tour that he was, 
particularly frustrated uh, with how they're playing in Portland. And so he was chewing guys out in the locker room and naming uh, D'Angelo Russell and Julius Randle specifically. I caught wind from, you know, different people about that. And, uh, you know, incidentally, after the locker room access had closed, so I was, you know, staking out in the hallway, trying to talk to other people and text, and then just waiting Kobe out uh, to see if he would say anything. And, you know, he was friendly. He, he We always, for the most part, worked well together. But he he, uh, he gave a sly smile and said, you know, I don't get into the gossip BS. But there was enough, I think, confirmation and insight from other people that were in the room that, you know, I went into detail about it. And then the next day of practice, that was kind of the talking point on how the young players responded because – as demanding as Kobe was throughout his career for better and for worse, that was the first time that they kind of dealt with that, you know, throughout that final season, a lot of times he was, he was a little bit more patient with them. And I think he was also just accepting the reality that the team wasn't good. They weren't going to win games a lot. He was injured and a shell of himself, but here was kind of a breaking point. So that, that, that's probably the most memorable one that comes to mind. Do you have a, a favorite recollection of a moment besides the the locker room interaction you had with him of Kobe Bryant? Well, favorite and memorable are different. I mean, the me- most memorable is that, uh, you know, I talked with him for a, a pretty, uh, a series of different stories, uh, like nine days before his passing. So, it was really weird and surreal and I think exacerbated just how you wrap your head around this tragedy because the subject matter was very much about his next stage in his life and how he was making this transition pretty well into overseeing a storytelling company and overseeing a a training facility and coaching Gianna. Uh, And it was also kind of cool to just catch up with him after not seeing him for a little bit. Uh, but, you know, favorite would be, I think, the 60-point the final game because it was very on brand for who Kobe was. But also it felt like a night in Vegas where, like, none of it made sense, but you just roll with it. Um, but I think that, that final year itself was very memorable and, and enjoyable because uh, even though the on-court performances – with exception of his final game, usually weren't good. Uh, It was very cool to just see the fan reception at Laker games and road games and then just being able to talk to him at length after the game because because of the fact that the team wasn't good uh, and everyone knew that it was his final year, he was getting very introspective uh, about things after games. And so it was just very uh, interesting to learn more and more things about his career during his sessions and his, you know, his points of view on different, you know, points of contention dur- during his, uh, his very layered career. So last summer going into fall, you were one of the lucky ones in the bubble. Looking back at it, was it an experience? How would you summarize that experience? It's something I cherished and I'm, I feel very fortunate to be, but it's, it goes without saying I never want to experience it again because one, that means there's still another pandemic going on and, and 
be, it was, it was very challenging. I mean, um, you know, I see sometimes on social media during the bubble and after the fact of, you know, people sneering on the, the challenges of being in the bubble and they said, oh, well, players and people were staying at hotels and there were amenities and, you know, you, you're watching games, covering games. And while, you know, I think that keeps some perspective in mind that you have a job, you're healthy, and, you're, you know, you're not doing manual labor intensive work. I mean, I think there's really a misunderstanding of, you know, what the work entails. It is not staying at a luxury hotel and just watching games and kicking back. It is working 16, 17 hours a day for like two months straight with maybe one or two or three days in between of recharging. And so I think for anyone that pushes back on it, just in the hypothetical of you have a typical office job, just imagine how challenging it would feel if you were asked to pull that shift for 16, 17 hours for two straight months and then see if, you know, you have any sort of empathy or, and I don't even say empathy because it's not like people need to feel sorry for anyone, but awareness of the challenges that players and all participants went through. Uh, and so, you know, it, it was one of those things you're, you're there, you're, you're fortunate to be a part of telling a lot of important stories from the health standpoint of the NBA pulling off this bubble season, the social justice issues, the games itself. But yeah, it was, it was very challenging to say the least. And to add on to your point, it's like going to a regular office job, but then you can't go home. You're working yeah. in your office essentially, and then you're just going to a different part of the office. Yeah, and I guess to extend this analogy, I don't want to say, "Hey, you're rolling up in a cot in your cubicle," but say you're you're you have to go across the street to, you know, uh, a hotel, and you're not able to be with family and attend to whatever needs that comes up with that. So, yeah, I think. I think the thing during this time is you have to keep all the positives and the negatives in the perspective, but I think it's a challenge of like, how do you fit each puzzle piece into it? And there's also no like mutually exclusive ideas. Like I think that, you know, when you're looking at the coaches, the players, the staff members and media, I think we're all very well aware of that, especially in this time, we're all very fortunate that we have, these really great jobs and we're healthy and and we're doing these things uh, and we're not being exposed to the same level of you know frontline workers but that doesn't mean that people aren't going through different challenges and they have every right to feel the burden of those challenges like the, these ideas aren't mutually exclusive it doesn't have to be a, an either or but unfortunately you know the times that we're in uh, there's not always a lot of, uh, you know, understanding or even, you know, acknowledging the, the want to try to understand the, the nuances of things. A couple teams, well, actually, all the teams left are very close to finishing their series. The Jazz, the 76ers are on the brink of extinction tonight, and the Bucks and Nets are going to a game seven. What teams come out on top of these games? 
You know, my caveat is you flip a coin and I would never, any of these predictions I want to put money on because it's just, there, there's too many moving parts. But if I, if I had to do a prediction, I, I think that you're going to see the Sixers out on top. You're going to see the Nets out on top uh, to face off in the East finals. As much as I'd like to say, hey, the Clippers showed a lot in game five, playing without Kawhi, they're having a, you know, a really big home game with a full capacity crowd. I think it's a lot to be asking them to win another game without Kawhi. And I think the Jazz get this in seven, but, you know, you can make a case for anything here. But if I had to do it, I think it's going to be the Suns and the Nets in the finals and, and the Nets ultimately prevail. But, you know, there's so many moving parts with the injuries um, and the severity of them. And just, I think, just a lot of good resiliency from a lot of these teams that when there is adversity, they're not, they're not folding. So it's it's been pretty captivating. That was just the best way you could put it. There's a lot of moving parts to, you know, obviously the bubble. There's a lot of moving parts to this year's playoff. It's whoever can maintain the most similarities that they do in the regular season. The Nets never had a fully healthy big three. The Clippers, it kind of seemed like they were always, you know, underperforming. And then they lost to get, you know, a better matchup round one. The Jazz exceeded expectations, but then everybody was like, well, will they really do it? And then Chris Paul turning back the clock, you know, year 16 again. But then he might miss a game here and there in the Western Conference Finals. So it's really just who can maintain the most regularity from the regular season. And that's who's going to win it all. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, I know that there's been some commentary this week because of, you know, the influx of NBA stars that have been out with injuries during the postseason of people saying, oh, well, it's the last team standing that's going to win the title, not the most talented. And this season deserves an asterisk. And I push back on that. I know that that was a talking point in the bubble. And I never subscribed to that because while there's there were a lot of uncontrollable elements you know, the Lakers deserve a lot of praise for being able to navigate those challenges. And whoever wins the NBA title here, it's not like they were immune to different challenges this season either. So uh, while, you know, I think there's a discussion to be had from the NBA of, you know, how do they maximize player chances of staying healthy and how the schedule is and the compressed nature of it and the quick turnaround played a role you know, to use that to then diminish whoever wins the championship, I think is a, it's taken a leap of faith because then, you know, it, it gets in the subject matter where that team didn't deserve it, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I think every team has had its own injuries this season, has had its own set of challenges and whoever ultimately prevails, um, you know, it shows to, to a large degree that, you know, they're able to navigate through this, those tough things. I do know that you have to go. You are very on top of all things NBA. A lot of West Coast games still to be played. A lot of basketball still to be done. So a huge thank you to you, Mark. If you haven't seen any of his work for USA Today Sports, it's all very, very great. Appreciate the time. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the playoffs, sir. I appreciate it, Stephen. And continue to be well and uh, enjoy the podcast. Thanks, sir.